I know. Uh, all right. Hey, turn in your Bibles, if you would, to uh, Genesis. And uh, I'll have you know, um, you know, we, we were kind of in random passages uh, throughout the summer. Well, actually, at the, from, we finished our study, I think, toward the end of June. We were in random passages for a while, and um, I have really enjoyed that. Um, but this is not a random passage. This is a, a part of something we're going to be doing um, for the next five times together. Um, so go ahead and find Genesis 1, and for sake of time, I'm going to include the passage, passages as we go, okay? So the sermon starts now, um, and I, 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 well, I'll tell you what, let me pray. Let's do that. Father, may the truth be spoken and received here today. In Jesus' name, amen. And that is no throwaway prayer, by the way. All right, so uh, I had a conversation with someone last week who had grown up in church um, but didn't know very much about theology and didn't know like standard Bible answers like a good little Baptist would know. And um, I was talking to this person, and uh, they, they, were, they were saying, yeah, you know, they didn't even know um, some basic Old Testament Bible stories, like stories about Daniel and, and uh, David and Goliath, of course, but uh, Daniel and, you know, Joseph and the amazing Technicolor dream coat and all that. You just didn't really know, uh, you know Old Testament uh, information. And um, so I was talking about that per- to that person, and I said, you know, it, when I grew up, I heard very few sermons from the Old Testament. And I bet you a lot of you are like that too. You heard very few sermons, except for a few assorted things, um, uh, a few stories here and there, Joseph and all that kind of stuff. But, but you hear very few sermons preached from the Old Testament. And if you think about this class, just over the summer, just in the last couple months, you've heard messages from First Chronicles, Micah, Isaiah, Jeremiah, it's a normal part of our Christian life and our, our time spent in God's word. It's not foreign to us. I heard zero messages from those books growing up, not one ever from any of those four books. So as I told this person I was talking to last week, I said, I'll tell you what, your whole world gets blown open like mine did. Your whole world gets blown open. The day you start to see the Bible as one continuous storyline. It changes everything. It goes from a little moral tale here and a little interesting story over here and a little something over here uh, to kind of get you through the day and little, little, uh, you know, a little uh, slogan for you. It goes from that to this connected um, situation, this connected uh, storyline. And uh, you might have heard this before. I'm sure you have. The people will say, oh, the Bible is a love letter from God. And... Uh, you know, that's, that's fine. It's fine. That tends to sentimentalize it a little bit, that it's a love letter from God. And it almost gives us an excuse to not be accountable to the author. You know, it's this love letter. I just kind of go over it when, when I need a little pick-me-up, but I kind of I skim through it. No, ladies and gentlemen, um, we don't especially want to rob the Bible of its continuity. It's not just a love letter from God. That's a great thing to tell children. But the Bible is a story. It's God communicating something to us. It's not a linear history like a history book in school where they have to catalog every single thing that happened and you take a test. It's not a linear history book, but it is a history book. It's a theological history book, and God is giving us a message, okay? So he wants us to know about himself. He wants us to know about humanity, what it means to be a human. He wants to know about our relationship as human beings to him. And he wants us to know how we are designed to live. And uh, most importantly, and I don't say that lightly, most importantly, um, but it is a revelation by God of how 
He has interceded to save sinners. That's what this book is cover to cover. It's not just a bunch of little stories. It's not just some intriguing stuff about Jesus and these little characters, Zacchaeus and all these people. Um, It is God communicating to us his way of making us okay to be in his presence. We are the inadequate due to sin, and he is the adequate um, due to his holiness. We are adulterated because of sin. He's unadulterated. That's what God wants us to know. So, what, what are we doing over the next five weeks? Well, Dr. Young in staff meeting last week, he said, you know, guys, he said, it's been said that um, the uh, foremost issue affecting the contemporary Christian church is homosexuality. It's the foremost issue. And, you know, he's right. Sadly, you know, you, you, a year and a half ago, you would have said, oh, well, the assault on the biblical family unit That's the foremost issue affecting uh, the contemporary church. Wow, the assault on the Christian. Well, we lost that. That's over. I mean, marriage legally in the United States has has, uh, been severely altered, and I I fear, uh, I don't want to be doomsday, but I'm telling you, what what do you think is going to happen 50 years from now or 80 or 100 years from now? What do you think is going to happen to democracy? When all the litigious uh, Cory B. Trotzes have found their way all over the Constitution uh, and all these Christian moorings kind of disappear, um, what do you think is going to happen? I don't know. But, ladies and gentlemen, I agree. The, uh, the big attack right now is, is essentially on what it is to be not just a human being, but a male human being or a female human being uh, and what that all looks like. So, for our next five times together, we're going to be studying the uh, issue of homosexuality. Um, we're going to anchor it in the passages that teach something about it in the scriptures, okay? And there'll be a one-week break for fall break. We'll come back for one more, and then Rosaria Butterfield is here on a Thursday night. And if you miss that, and if you don't, can't c- cancel a soccer game or whatever is going on, you're insane. If you miss Rosaria Butterfield and don't bring your closest friends uh, and maybe somebody who's struggling, you're nuts. Uh, she's awesome. So it's going to be a Thursday night in October. Anyway, all that to say, here's our main idea today. A male-female monogamous marriage is foundational to human society and the gospel itself. Uh, you throw it out. You throw out a whole lot. And I can tell you as a Bible teacher, you know, I've got the weirdest perspective in the, the whole church. I, I can honestly say that. I have the weirdest perspective in the whole church because I'm a Bible teacher in here and I see all your faces and I, I'm the worship guy out there and I see all the faces. It's a very strange perspective with everybody going, very strange. And um, I can tell you when the issue of homosexuality, homosexuality is brought up, you can almost see some people go, they seize up. They're like, yeah, the church, the Bible, all that, but uh, because it's, it's just been so ingrained. But I'm telling you, I want you to walk out of here in six weeks or so and say, ah, I see what the Bible says very clearly about how we're designed. All right? So uh, let's go to our first point, uh, in the beginning. Now, <clears throat> I brought 10 Genesis commentaries home in my, my big giant briefcase, um, and uh, I left four or five more Genesis commentary is here on the shelf. And uh, of the 10 I brought home, I only used the five most technical. I also used a book by Kevin DeYoung and also a book by a gay Christian uh, advocate and, uh, and a couple of other articles, okay? And uh, what's interesting about the two books by, the, by Kevin DeYoung, who's a Christian guy writing for the biblical position, and this gay advocate guy who's written this thoughtful book, very respectful book, um, 
Uh, the difference between them is uh, the difference that, that always seems to be when you, whenever you read those kinds of things. Uh, Kevin DeYoung's book starts where I'm starting. Genesis 1, verse 1. That's where his book starts. Where this other guy's book starts and where most of these other books and, and articles start is with a story. A story of some kind of heartache, a story of somebody who had a kid and it broke their family's heart and they wanted to accept their kid, and it, or a guy who just felt uh, 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 oppressed or suppressed, or a woman who, who, who was got entangled in a situation. Um, it's always some kind of heartbreaking story. Um, and you know, like the shack was like that. All, lots of these books are like that, where they go bang and your heart gets stung and they kind of pull you in. It's kind of a rope-a-dope thing. And I'm telling you, that's, a, that's an argument technique, okay? But, but I'm thinking, where should I start this whole thing? Well, I was very relieved to see where Kevin DeYoung started, which is in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. So let us look at that uh, right now. Genesis 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created. Now, is that not a logical start, ladies and gentlemen? Is it logical? Uh, If you're a a God-believer-inner, is that not a logical place to start? I believe that God is the creator of the universe. I believe he is who he says he is. I believe this is an, is an inerrant word. I believe this is our guide and, and rule of life. Uh, where should I start, Lord, in considering this issue? Let's start with, in the beginning, God created. And I would suggest to you that any other starting point than that starting point will probably lead you to a false conclusion. So again, we're at the beginning of creation. Uh, God wants to share himself with the world he's created. And so he gives us a big book. And right from the beginning, we see that he speaks and things are. He says, uh, let there be light and there was light. He says, let there be an expanse and, then, and, and there is one. Uh, something comes from nothing and um, everything happens by divine fiat. He says it and it is so. This is what this creating God is saying about himself in the scriptures from the very beginning. And uh, he also makes these declarations. He says, um, you know, in verse chapter 1, verse 3, uh, he says, let there be light. There was light. And it says in verse 4, uh, he saw that the light was good. And then he makes uh, seas and dry land. And it says, and God saw that it was good. And then he makes uh, stuff that grows. And it says, and God saw that it was good. He says it about the stars and the cosmos, the stuff in the water, uh, the livestock, the beasts, the creeping things. He says, it's good. It's good. He makes this. He says it. He speaks it. It comes into existence. It's good. It's good. It's good. And then look at verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the ground. Now, I pause for a moment to ask you, is everything clear thus far? It's pretty, pretty clear, isn't it? God in the beginning, starts to create. He creates things. He makes them. He proclaims that they are good. They are good. They are good. God is creating in the manner and order of his liking. And then he finally comes and he describes, uh, I call them concept Christians, uh, you know, like a concept car, you know, like the, the super duper one they worked really hard on. Like, this is the best thing we put out. Look at this. He makes the first, he makes the first people And uh, in verse 27, it says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So it's not just this uh, 
proclamation, but it's something to be placarded up. It's something to be pondered and wondered over. Okay, in the beginning, God made this, this creation, and he makes light, and he separates the water, and he makes the cosmos, he makes the animals, the livestock, the creeping things, and then he makes human beings. And uh, how does he do it? So, like, what's normative? What is he creating? What does he want to be on this earth? What is his plan? How does he want it to be? God created man in his own image, humans. That's in the image of God, he created him, humans. More specifically, male and female, he created them. So he makes humankind, he makes humankind, male and female, he created them. Now, skip ahead to chapter 2, verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now, stop there for a moment because I feel like we rush over this sometimes. Um, uh, As I said earlier, God made repeated statements about his creation being good. It's good. It's good. It's good. And um, earlier on, you know, there's two two statements about uh, God's creating um, men and women. Um, you've got a more general one, and then you've got a more specific one. And in chapter 2, you have the uh, uh, more specific one, uh, verse 20 and following, 21 and following. You have this more specific uh, way that God, uh, uh, disc- uh, rendering of how God created a woman. Um, but ladies and gentlemen, um, in our passage here, it says this in uh, chapter 2, verse 18, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper for him. Now, isn't it interesting that things aren't good, they're not good, they're not good, they're not, I mean, they're, excuse me, they're good, 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 good. Now they're not good. Now I ask you this, do you think that God was surprised? Do you think that God made all this stuff and um, then he goes, oh, I blew it, I forgot one. You know, I was so distracted by the giraffes uh, with the neck and the spots and everything that I forgot about the human female. Oh my goodness. Do you think God forgot about that? Or do you think that it is built into the way he created so something could be augmented, so that something couldn't be missed? I'm telling you it's that. And I'll tell you, not only does it give us insight into what God's design is for humanity, for males and for females, what is normative, but do you also see that um, by, you know, listen, it's tough for, a, it's tough for the, even the biggest, strongest, it's tough for Sherry Wright to become a Delta Force uh, uh, army guy, lady. It's tough. Men are stronger, generally. Men are bigger, generally. And from the very beginning, God makes these bigger, stronger ones, and he says, you know what? Get it right, buddy. I'm going to say everything's good, but it's not very good until I make her. And once I make her... I mean, it just, it just takes a woman's position and elevates and puts it on par with, with a man so that that never should be ever, ever lorded over a woman and say that you're inferior or you're less. Never. Created equally in God's sight. It's just an, it's a profound thing that God does right at the beginning. Now, what happens? It gets awesome and kind of nutty. In verse 19, um, out of the ground... The Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. Do you know what an abbreviated word for that activity is? Science. I mean, Adam is cataloging the creation before him. 
And he's naming it. He's, there's authority over that creation, but he's cataloging. He's the first scientist. He, he's viewing what is, and he's, and he's naming it. Well, what has God shown to Adam throughout this whole thing? He says, okay, let me show you the, all these animals, um, here, every beast of the field, every bird of the heavens. Uh, let's see what you would name them. And Adam goes, okay, that's a mm, and that's a this, and this is a this. And wow, look at that crazy thing. Wow, look at that. And he names them. But what does it show to Adam, and what does it show to us as we read it? It shows that Adam was a truly solitary man. <laughs> I mean, there, he didn't have a buddy, and he didn't have a lady. Uh, there were no other human beings. And uh, I'm sure that was quite acutely felt, wouldn't you think? He's shown to be a solitary man. And he's, it's shown to us that Adam was a solitary man. And that other creatures, they ain't going to do it. Um, the, the, the other creatures don't answer him. You know, he's communicative like God. He's made in God's image like God. Um, so he's uh, got a moral sense. He's, got a, uh, he's a person. He's uh, communicative. He's relational. He talks to these other creatures. They don't answer back because they can't. It's very stark. It's, it's supposed to be stark. He is alone. And uh, you, know what else the, you know what else these other things are doing? They have mates. They have mates. And uh, guess what mates do? They mate. And uh, so he's going, oh, wow, what are, those do- what are those dogs doing? Wow. I guess they like it. Oh, the coyotes are doing it too. Look, people are storming out in disgust. <laughs> They're like, <laughs> let's keep going. Look at those rhinos. Look at those elephants. Um, anyway, he's, he's observing this. And, you know, it's, it's funny. In, in, in our culture, in the last, you know, 50 years, you know, we have to have these discussions. When do we tell our children about the blue, blah, blah, blah? When do we have a discussion with our children about that? Well, you know what? 50, 80, 100 years ago, 6,000 years ago, when they were two, they were looking out the window going, what are the goats doing, Mommy? You know, they figure it out. And uh, there's a very natural, oh, the mallards. <laughs> Even they're in on the action. Wow. I mean, it's just an observation of creation, the way creation works. There's a normative, uh, there, there's a pattern, isn't there? I mean, there's one, the male one, and then on the female, and they get together, and then there's more. It's a pattern of creation. In the beginning, God created. And so, by parading all these things in front of Adam, he's like, oh, okay, I get it. I don't have one of those. It'd be awesome if I did. We're supposed to read that and feel it and sense a startling isolation, and God meets the need. There's absolutely no one who will match Adam perfectly for him. And uh, here's a commentator's uh, uh, translation of uh, verse 18. The Lord said, I will make a helper for him, corresponding to him. I love that, corresponding to him. Um, um, So not a surprise to God. Uh, woman isn't forgotten. Um, God is telling a story, and I think the story is that it is hardwiring into us this male-female relationship, someone who corresponds to the other, uh, that are like each other but not like each other, complementary to each other, equal to each other in value and worth in God's sight, but different than each other, just like the giraffes and everything else that roams this earth, just like it. That is not illogical, friends. It's not illogical. Um, Look at verse 21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, 
And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And uh, let's stop there for a second. Um, if you go to a doctor or if you talk to one of the doctors in here, they'll tell you you have, you have 12 sets of ribs and that uh, there's not one missing in a man. I don't know if you've ever heard that in Sunday school, but that's like magic talk. Uh, and that's what people use to criticize the stupid Christians. Well, oh, those stupid Christians, oh, they'll just fall for anything. Uh, I've seen a skeleton. And we know what a skeleton looks like. You can look it up online, okay? But in this instance, uh, God takes a rib from Adam. And it's interesting, he doesn't um, create Eve the same way as he creates Adam. Adam's, Adam's created from the dust of the earth. Eve is created from Adam. And we'll talk about that more in our next point, uh, which will be fairly quick. Um, but um, let's pause there for application, because I know this has been a long point. Um, people, um, like I said, don't know when to tell their kids about the birds and bees and all that stuff. But when the viewing the creation account, ladies and gentlemen, God's intent for one flesh intimacy uh, between two people, um, it... it, it um, it appears to be a very rational thing, doesn't it? If we have a redeemed, rational perspective and we see how God has created, we see that something's normative. Am I right or wrong about that? Is it logical or illogical that God has created a pattern? You look at mammals and the way mammals behave. You look at reptiles, the way reptiles behave, and birds, the way birds behave, and creeping things, the way creeping things behave. And you look at human beings and you say, I see a normative pattern here. And because we're image bearers, human beings, we're not like the other animals. You know, we think about what's going to happen next Thursday and next Christmas and five Christmases from now and where we're going to retire. That's not what rhinos are thinking about. We're different. We're made in God's image. And so interestingly, you've got this man-woman pairing. When does that man-woman pairing take place in recorded biblical history? Before the fall, before the entrance of sin into the world's existence, which has negatively impacted and hurt all of humanity and creation. You know what else uh, was, what, what other institution was put in place before the fall? Only one other one, the Sabbath. Marriage and the Sabbath, both put in place before the fall. I'm telling you, it's the fall that messed everything up. It's the fall that took the normative good plan of God and twisted it and turned it into heartache. All right, next point, and you'll, you'll, you'll be pleased to know that this will move a little quicker. Um, God's normal for marital love. This whole um, Eve made from a rib thing. Um, I've, I've, I've written this in my notes on the side. I didn't really have room for it, and then I came back in and this morning. I was like, I got to say it um, because it's just too profound, and I bet you've never even heard it. Um, you know what federal headship is, right? You've heard that term, federal headship? It's a biblical idea. It's a very important biblical idea. If you're going to understand the gospel, you need to at least have some grasp of it. You understand what the federal government is? It's over the local government. It's, it's the federal government. We're all affected by the federal laws, right? All right, so federal headship is this idea that Adam is the head of humanity. Adam is our federal head. When Adam sinned, we all fell into sin. When Adam sinned, the creation fell. Hey, uh, who, who was tempted in the garden? Eve. Who's charged with the crime? 
Adam, the head, the federal head. And if you go, here's what we do. We kind of go, well, shoot, man, Adam, I kind of like a shot at that garden. You know, it doesn't seem fair to me that you put Adam in there and uh, he blows it. Now I'm guilty, uh, you know, by proxy. I'm born in sin, says, say the scriptures. Uh, that doesn't seem fair. Give me a shot. Well, do you not think that the creator of the universe uh, put the best, spiffiest, awesomest, Brad Pitt-looking uh, guy in the garden? You don't think that God knew what he was doing? Um, and uh, they were sinless, by the way. They were holy, by the way. They were walking with God in the cool of the day, by the way, uh, and yet they rebelled. So would you, and I, so would you, you and I. Uh, Adam is our federal head. But if you struggle with that, then you've got real problems. You know why? Because the New Testament would tell us that Christ is our federal head. Christ died on the cross in the place of sinners. Christ took the punishment that we deserve. He's a federal head too. Do you understand? In Adam we sin. In Christ uh, we are redeemed. That's why Jesus is called the second Adam or the last Adam, federal headship. Well, Eve is created in a unique way, not from the dust of the ground like Adam, so that there would be two of the same, but she's created from Adam. So under his federal headship, um, she finds her guilt. It's not, it's not just because she sinned. It's because she's under his federal headship in Adam's sin. Is that not profound? But I'm telling you, it's a gospel application that I've never even heard anybody talk about. That if Eve were created in a different way, federal headship would be negatively affected and the gospel could be thrown out. So, moving on with this Eve thing. There's also this organic uh, unity between man and woman that's not shared by anything else in creation. Um, In verse 23, it says, Then man sees Eve and he says, "Um, um, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Um, And, wow, a naked lady, not bad. Uh, All of a sudden, God, that's a pretty good good gift right there. Um, And, uh, but, you know, ladies and gentlemen, this uh, flesh of my flesh, bone of my bone stuff, um, you got to be careful because that's used in other places in the Scriptures too. Laban says it to Jacob, you are bone in my flesh. Israel, the nation, repeats it to David, we are your bone and flesh repeatedly, they say it to David. Um, so, yeah, that's true. You can't just say, oh, well, flesh of my flesh, bone of my bone only means uh, Eve. But notice what comes next, friends. Look at verse 24. Therefore... A man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now, I have a question for you. Who said that? I mean, the previous verse, we know who said it. I mean, it's in quotation marks. The, uh, the, uh, you know, the uh, translators are kind enough to put some punctuation in there for you. Um, uh, this is bone of my bones at last. Ha! And flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman. She's taken out of man. Verse 24, notice the quotation marks disappear. Who is saying that? Well, I'll tell you what Jesus says, if you like him. Um, he says this. Uh, yeah, 19.4. He says this in Matthew. Uh, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? Do you believe the Savior? Do you, do you believe what he thinks about the Old Testament? Do you think, believe what he thinks about the creation account? This is what he says. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And Jesus said, 
Oh, oh, excuse me. He who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and he said, the one who created them said, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Jesus is telling us that it is the father who is speaking in the creation account. Adam says, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She's woman. She was taken out of man. And God says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. That is the institution of marriage, ladies and gentlemen. Culture didn't make it up. It's not a social moray. It is a um, uh, God-installed thing. Why can't two dudes leave and cleave parents or two ladies or a bunch of folks? Why not? Well, here are a few reasons, and with these, uh, we'll we'll wrap it up. Number one, um, the way the woman was created was on purpose. That she was created from man is profound. Um, A man created from man is nowhere in this narrative. God is putting it in here so we observe it and say, oh, this is reality. This is how things are supposed to be. And what of the woman? She is differentiated from man. She is equal but opposite. She is uh, opposite but complementary. I mean, it's this wonderful thing. Um, It's this wonderful mystery. I don't want to stray too long, but let me just tell you, you know, it's confusing being married, isn't it, a little bit? You know, when I first got married, I was like, man, it's going to be great, and we're just going to move and have pizza, and it's going to be just fun, and she's, you know. And then you go, wow, girls are really different than men. Uh, and girls are going, Ew, wow, these hairy apes, I mean, they're very different, and it's very challenging, and God takes the differences, and he, he humbles and tenderizes a man, and he, and he makes a woman have to, have to put her emotions aside for a second and get inside that guy's head. And I mean, it's just a, it's an amazing, amazing challenge, isn't it? And the long, we've been married 26 years, and uh, the longer we're married, I, I'm just, I'm in awe of the institution of marriage, and... Uh, I don't want to wax on too long about it, but I mean, I just, I love my wife. I'm amazed by my wife. Uh, right when I think I got her figured out, she stuns me uh, uh, yet again, you know? I mean, we're different. And part of the, part of the opposite complementary nature of it is that God uses that to refine us. I know about dudes that there's, there's no challenge in that. There's no, it, it, it's, it's the way God designed it um, to, to be. Um, here's another thing. The, the one flesh union assumes the opposite sex. To put it in a crude way, this is what one writer said. It's, it's, it's a little ineloquent, but he said, merely sticking your finger in someone's ear does not unite two people in an organic union. It's a pretty good point. Not the most, not the most beautifully put. Um, but uh, he says, uh, nor does it bring them together as a single subject to fulfill a biological function. When a man and woman come together in one flesh uh, and their sexual intimacy, there is in a sense a reunion. She has come from man and she's come back together with man and there is in, in a sense a reunion, a creation reunion. It's, it's just the most intimate two people can be. And you know, when a, when a man marries a woman and a woman marries a man, what happens to them? They are as if they are blood. They are closer than blood because they're closer than a boy and his mommy. Closer than blood. All right, third thing. 
procreation is only possible with a male and female. And uh, aside from Hollywood gymnastics and, uh, you know, it doesn't hurt when you've got like $50 million in the bank and you can hire somebody to be a surrogate and do this thing and do that thing and all that. Uh, Procreation is only possible with a male and a female. Anybody who assembles any other combination of that is is putting together a a unit of humans who live together. Now, I'm not saying that um, if a spouse dies or if a person can't have kids or whatever, it, it doesn't change the fact, but I'm saying that um, procreation can only happen with billy goats and mallard ducks, uh, boys and girls, and it's true that procreation is not a requirement for a marriage to be valid, um, but it is a normative plan uh, in God's creation. You know, in chapter 128, God tells them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Um, if you've got a King James Version, it says replenish the earth. That's terrible. It doesn't mean replenish. It means fill. It's not like there were people before and you've got to fill them up again. Um, it, it is fill the earth. And uh, uh, the idea is um, fill um, continuously. Here's what one guy wrote. He said, mankind existed in an empty, unpopulated world. God had prepared so that it might be filled with people. That can only happen with a boy and a girl. All right, I close with this. Um, folks, I in no way want to make light of hurt. Um, there, there's, a, there's a lot of hurt in a lot of families, and we'll talk about it more in the weeks to come. Um, a lot of hurt in a lot of families. A lot of people love their kid. Um, uh, there are parents who go into a homosexual lifestyle. There are all kinds of things that happen. Hurt is hurt. It, it really is hurt. But there's a narrative above the narrative of life, ladies and gentlemen. There's a narrative above the narrative that you and I see. There's a meta-narrative. There's a greater story. And uh, in the middle of all the hurt and all the confusion and all the question marks and all the grappling and the struggles and who am I, why does life matter, what is humanity, why am I attracted to this or this or this or what is gender, Uh, in in the middle of all those struggles, there's a meta-narrative. And the meta-narrative is a God who dwells in perfection, who, who plans things that are orderly and make sense. Friends, it is sin that affects creation and spins it negatively and causes hurt. Sin, sin, sin. The thing that answers sin, the thing that relieves hurt, is the God of the meta-narrative. And the God of the meta-narrative has sent a Savior, Jesus, who can rescue his people from sin and rescue his people from themselves that would give us a perspective to say, what saith you, O God? I mean, when we're going to approach any issue in life, no matter how heart-wrenching it is, no matter how confusing it is, no matter how complex it is, the place to start is in the beginning, God created Righteous Father, I um, pray that every person in this room, starting with me, would be tenderized to the hurt in the world around us. I pray, Lord, that we would not um, cast a ridiculous finger in someone's direction over this sin or that when we are full of sin ourselves, secret sins, and sins that we don't even know about, but you do. Uh, We pray, Lord, that we would submit to you, that we would use your word Uh, as the rule of all that is uh, good in life. And I pray, Father, that you would grip these souls and um, help us, Lord. Help us hold to what is true. 
Uh, Help us cling to you. Help us love your law because it's the best thing for us uh, and most glorifying to you. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks, y'all.